0: The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages, we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all His glory and His shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis ten stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit CBCVirginia.com. So, uh, this week was a great week from a work perspective for me. I know it's probably hard for you to think that you have be, be working this one hour right here. of my week of vacation, but I do work the rest of the week. And uh, it was a great week from a work perspective. I had my sermon all done on Wednesday, which is a little earlier than I have been getting done in late. It's been happening for the last few weeks, months, for longer. But, um,. <laughs> Thursday, I got a bunch of stuff done Thursday that I had to spend some time for. the Friday morning came, and I had kind of already planned my work day out. I knew what it was going to be. I was, getting, I was going to stop working at 12 on Friday because I had done some other things in the week. So that was my plan. And we had an elder meeting that morning at 6 30, like we normally do. And uh, in the middle of the meeting, Chris, who's the very first elder meeting, I'm still hazing him right now, but Chris uh, announces to us that they're on their way up to Pennsylvania and made a decision to go up Pennsylvania wife, if you have not been following the, the news of cobblestone, Kristen's brother and his wife had their first child at 23 weeks, and so it's a really bad situation, but a doctor said that the baby's doing surprisingly well for uh, his double uh, prematureness that he has there, but they decided to go. And he said that to us, and we're like, oh yeah, that's, that makes sense. Not in our heads, we'll plan for you, and I got home, and I didn't think anything of it. About 8.40, Jordan sends me a text, and he said, wait a minute, Chris isn't going to be there this week. You're going, so the reason it matters is because our entire service today was originally supposed to be an installation service for Chris. Where I was (laughs) going to challenge him with what the responsibility of being an elder was, and challenge us as a church body with what our responsibility to him was supposed to be. And now at 840 on Friday morning, I find out that everything in my sermon, everything that we had planned, is gone. So I, I texted him back and I said, give me a few minutes, I'll respond. I <laughs> sat there at my desk and I just looked down and I'm like, what do I do? I had a little bit of prep work done for our next section of Genesis, but I'll be honest, it wasn't very much. And I'm trying to contemplate writing a completely new sermon Friday morning, Friday afternoon, and Friday evening to be ready for today. And on top of it, the passage we're in next is a genealogy with like thousand Horribly hard names to say that I normally would practice a long time to get used to, be ready to say for you. So I'm like, ah, there's no other option. we got to go into Genesis today. So here I am, 9 o'clock Friday morning. My whole day is now shot. Everything I had planned was shot. All the things we we're going to do with Jamie and the kids that afternoon was shot. And I'm writing a new sermon. And you get to hear it now. Are you ready? <laughs> now I say you that partially because I'm looking for sympathy. All right. <laughs> I'm getting ready to read, as I just said, a whole bunch of incredibly difficult names, and I have practiced them numerous times, and now you get to enjoy my attempt at reading through them. If you will, look at Genesis 10. We're going to do the entire fourth story today. I'll explain more if you don't know what that means here in this moment, but we're going to read from Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 9, and then we'll pray, and we'll begin together this well. Look at Uah, verse 1.
1: Moses writes that these are the generations of
0: the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Griffith, and Togarmah. The sons of Jabin, Elisha, Harshish, Hittim, and Godanim. From these the coastline people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sapta, the sons of Ramah, Shida, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush' father Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-Hir, Calah, and Reason, between Nineveh and Calah, That is the great city. Egypt's father, Ludum, (coughs) Nahin, Lichamine, Naphtahim, Hathersene, Kauslachim, from whom the Philistines came, and Tapherim. Canaan's father, Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergeshites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arbidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Ge- Geza, Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Laisha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem: Elam, Asher, Arphad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Nerim, Uz, school, gather, and mash. Arpashad, father Sheila, Sheila father Eber. The yeah. Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, For in his days, the earth was divided. His brothers' name was Jochim. Jochim yeah. fathers Elmadad, Sheila mm-hmm. Hazar Mabeth, Jera, Hadram, Zuzel, yeah. Nikla, Obal, Abimeel, Sheba, Ofer, Kabbalah, and Joab. All these were the sons of Jonchim. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and vitamin for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose supposed to do will not be possible. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand what they want to speak. the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for letting us come today to your word. We We understand that we have no say with the events of the week and the things that happen, and yet we know that you are in control of all things. So this morning, you brought us into this passage today for a reason. There are things here we need to understand this Sunday, not next. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit will enable us to understand what it is that's here. I pray that you'll help me to accurately communicate the truth in this passage anything I have here in that is in any way distracting from your message is in any way contrary to what you intended for us to understand. Please prevent me from saying it. Please prevent these people from hearing it. I pray, Lord, that you will take your word and drive it deep into our hearts because ultimately we do want to be like you in every way. And one of the blessings of being your child is that you have communicated to us the things that we need to understand about this. So I pray, Father, as we work with the text this morning, that we will see the world like you do, that we will understand history like you do, that we will understand your workings in this world like you do, that so we can be as much like as possible. Father, bless our time together, we ask, may it be beneficial, may it bring the glory to Jesus. Some passages become so well-known over time that they get that, uh, get their own names attached to them. Uh, some of them we know simply by the chapter number or whatever that's in the Bible. So ladies, I'll give you an example of this. If you have grown up in church, if you've attended ladies' conferences, if you've been to ladies' Bible studies, then you will understand this. If you haven't, then just wait and I'll explain it in a moment. But if I say to you that you should be a Proverbs 31 woman and not a Proverbs 7 woman, you understand what I mean by that comment? Some of you, yes, some of you, know. That's because those two passages, are content is so well known that we can just refer to them by their, their chapter number and people automatically understand what's going on. In Proverbs 31, we have the story or the description of what? Excellent, Someone said fiction? What? <laughs> <laughs> the perfect woman? There's no chapter to the perfect man, by the way, other than Jesus, so you're, you're good. Uh, there's the description of the perfect woman. She's godly. She's righteous. She does everything right. She's a small business owner. She's got all this stuff going on, and, and we read about her, and, and Jamie hates her. Hates her to <laughs> death. And uh, we <laughs> make fun of that passage quite a bit. But, of course, we would say that you want to be like a Proverbs 31 woman. We would not say that you want to be a Proverbs 7 woman, right? Because Proverbs 7 woman is not quite to that caliber of... Um, I have a word I could describe her with, but I'm not sure it's appropriate to use. Uh, she is a promiscuous woman, a woman that is seeking the harm of others around her. And so if I say to you, which one do you want to be? It'd be beneficial to say Proverbs 31. Other passages are known by some kind of title. So if I asked you this morning to turn to the Sermon on the Mail, where would you turn? Matthew 5. Okay, that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That sermon that Jesus preached there that day is so well known that we've given it a title. It's not a biblical title, it's just one people have applied to it. That if we say to turn there, many people will know where to go. If I ask you to turn to the Hall of Faith, where would you turn? Hebrews 11. That's because of Hebrews 11, there's all this, by faith so and so did this, by faith so and so did that. Okay, just continuing on and on and on, examples of faith. If I ask you to turn to the love chapter, where would you turn? Don't say Proverbs 7. Where would you turn? <laughs> where? First Corinthians thirteen, okay, because you know that in that passage, Paul is describing for us what true love is and is not. So, as humans, we like giving names to things, and we do that even with certain passages of Scripture. We name them based on their content. Well, it just so happens that the story I read to you this morning has two different names because most people view it as two different parts. And I guess that's kind of true. There are two kind, uh, two different parts in this particular passage but we need to be careful about how we think about it. One of these names you know very well. The other name you probably don't know at all. The first part of this story, part there in chapter 10, the genealogy, is often referred to as the table of nations. So if you hear people talking about the table of nations, you know they're talking about Genesis chapter 10. And the reason that they call it the table of nations is, I think, fairly obvious, is because throughout that passage, Moses outlines where all these various people groups, nations, cities, things like that, where they found their origin. Very interesting in some respects. If you like history, and you like archaeology, you like looking at the way the nation peoples lived, he, he gives a, an explanation of that. The next part of the story, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, is often referred to as what? Tower of Babel. Again, it's not a, a truly biblical name, it's based on things in the text, but we've given it that title, and people know that story by that particular title. I read it to you, you understand the basic gist of the story, correct? All the people come to this land of Shinar. They're together as a group. They make a decision that we can build a city and a tower reaches to heaven. That way we can all stay together. And God sees what's happening there. He doesn't like it. And so he comes down, he confuses their languages and they spread out. It, it's kind of, uh, not to be disrespectful, it's kind of a weird story in a sense. It explains why there are so many different languages in the world. I guess that's good. But the story in and of itself, and particularly its placement, seems a little odd. But most people don't think about that because they read these two different sections as being completely separate, as if one has nothing to do with the other, but that's not the case. These two sections both fall within the same story. If you look at chapter 10, verse 1, you see this little phrase that is at the beginning of each and every story in Genesis. If you've been with us the whole time, you know how many stories there are in Genesis now. Genesis is a prologue, Followed by ten stories. Each story begins with a special Hebrew word <coughs> class. What is it? Toledot. And in English, the word Pehladeot is translated as "These are the generations of," or "This is the account of," or "This is the, the story of." Here you see it in the beginning of chapter ten, verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here you go. That's your marker. Brand new story. When you get to chapter eleven, verse one, you don't see it again. In fact, the next toledo, the next marker to tell you that we're moving to a new story, doesn't come until chapter 11, verse 10. That's the next story. In fact, right? that's the last story we're going to look at here in Genesis, and it's this big. I mean, we're going to, we're going to cover it one week here in just about a month. Actually, we're going to take a break temporarily. Uh, but it doesn't come until chapter 11, verse 10, which means that everything that I just read to you this morning is all part of the same story and is making the same point. You can't divide out the table of nations section there in chapter 10 from the Tower of battle story in chapter 11. If you do, you're not going to understand the larger point that Moses is trying to make. And so the question before us this morning is, what's the point? What, what is he trying to communicate to us here? Well, Unlike how I normally approach these kinds of things, I'm going to give you the answer right off the bat. You ready? You've got a pen and paper. You can write it down. This is the whole sermon in one sentence. You can go home after this. Whole sermon in one sentence. Here's the answer to the question of what's the point of this story. I think that what Moses is doing here is that he's trying to help Israel understand the world they live in. That's it. He's trying to help Israel understand understand the world they live in, in other words, if, if we can force ourselves to put, to put ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite, the sandals of an Israelite, out in the wilderness, getting ready to, to enter the land of Canaan, what Moses is trying to do is trying to help you and I get a, a, a firm Amen. grasp of all the things that we see around us in this world. All the peoples, all the countries, the, the situation, what God has done with it all. He's trying to help us understand. And from their perspective, what Moses is doing here is he's mixing a little bit of the old with a, a little bit of the new. For us, it's all old, which is part of the problem. But from their perspective, they're looking at, or hearing the words like Babel and Nineveh, cities that they would be familiar with in their day and time. And seeing that what Moses is doing is he's attaching them back into the larger story of what God has done throughout this section of Genesis here that we've been in. He's mixing some old with some new. And I would argue that in the end, this particular story, story number four here in Genesis, is accomplishing just what I said. It's trying to give them an understanding of the world they lived in. Now, that's the simple answer. And you could go home now and have a basic understanding of what this story is about. However, it's actually a bit more involved than that. You see, all of us in this room need a right understanding of the world we live in. Every one of us does. Israel needed it in their day, we need it in our day. In our day we have a name for this kind of thing. We call it a worldview A way in which we understand the world we live in. It's a way in which we process all the stuff around us, whether it's nations or events or things or people or ideas, whatever it is, We all need a way of processing all of this data, and what we call that nowadays is a worldview. That's basically what Moses is giving to them. And whether or not you realize it, every single person in this room has a worldview, you have a way of processing all the stuff that happens around you. Every time you listen to the news, you process it and understand it based on that worldview. Every time you read a book, read a newspaper, have a conversation, look at a piece of art, look at anything, listen to this sermon, No matter what you do, you run everything you do through the grid of your worldview. And our worldview can be influenced by so many different things. It's influenced by our culture. And so because, for example, our our culture thinks that, you know, technology is the greatest thing ever, in our generation, my generation, whenever something new, new technological advancement comes, what do we do? We're like, yay, this is better. The world is greater now. But people from a different generation who come from a different culture look at it and go, oh, more distraction." Why do we look at it different? It's a culture issue. It's a worldview issue. Culture influences us. Family and friends influences us. It's very likely that you use certain things in this world the same way that your parents did, Or the same way that the friends that you hang out with view them today. You, those things influence us in the way we understand life our beliefs influence that. If you believe that, that aliens brought you know DNA to Earth and populated the Earth through that, then guess what? You're crazy. But you're going to view the world a certain way. It's going to affect how you understand things. Just like our beliefs about the scripture affect how we understand things. It, it, it has a, it, it, by necessity, has an impact. Our preferences have an impact. Experiences have an impact on our worldview. If you've never worked with someone who's been abused in the past, then you don't understand why they see the world like they do. I remember a girl that I worked with in North Carolina before Jamie and I got married. She, she was young. She couldn't have been more than no way she was older than 25. Uh, she was probably younger than that by a few years. But at either in high school or early in college, she had been raped and abused by a boyfriend. And now she was cynical about everything. And all met. I was in the temple all day. That was a fun day she, she viewed the world through the lens of her experience, and it colored her view of the world, her understanding of the world, in a way that makes sense once you understand her experiences. Experiences affect us, and then, quite frankly, stupidity affects our worldview. Ignorance can have just as much of an impact on the way we see things as all the positive stuff around us. And so, sometimes our own stupidity gets in the way of understanding the world. We get all this stuff that's there, we got all these things impacting us, what I want you to understand is that every one of us in this room this morning has a worldview that needs to be influenced more by the scriptures than by any of the things I just listened to. We need a biblically informed worldview. We need a God-centered way of looking at this world, a view of this world that's influenced by God's view of this world. He's the only one who sees everything perfectly correct. So, my question now is how do I come to have a right understanding of the world like this? How can I get to the place where I can see the world in as close, I'll never be perfect, but as close to the same way that God does? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. Because what Moses is doing here is he's, he's writing these things to help Israel understand the world it lives in, and I think we can use this as a very good example for ourselves. Moses is giving Israel a right understanding of the world that's based on two separate but related things. And I want you to know these very carefully. Number one, he's giving them an understanding of the world that finds its foundation in what God has providentially done in the past. But he's not saying, look, just kind of wing it today. He's trying to root them in what God has already accomplished in the past. And then second, he's giving them an understanding of the world that is seen through the lens of God's plans for the future. So he's taking them and saying, look, look left, look right. Look back, look forward. We want to understand both ends of the spectrum because in the middle, it helps us make sense of all the things that we see around us. So if we can find our foundation on what God has done in the past, if we can look ahead through the lens of, of God's plan for the future, we're going to have a a good understanding of all the things that happen to us in the here and now. So let's let's see these two components here in the fourth story of Genesis. We're going to start by looking at what God has providentially done in the past, because that's where Moses begins here in chapter 10. As you can see, chapter 10 is a what? What is it? Genealogy. 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 And we've seen genealogy. Happening so far in Genesis. We saw one back in chapter 5. In fact, hold your spot where you're at there Genesis 10 and just look back at chapter 5. And I want everybody to do this. I want you to take just a moment and just quickly compare the two. Because as you look at them, you're going to note a number of very striking differences in these two genealogies. In Genesis chapter 5, the, the genealogy there is just a straight line from Adam to Noah. He, he's just doing everything he can to move as quickly as possible from Adam to Noah so he can advance the story and get us to the next section that he wants to deal with. And so it follows one line. One line only. You see the same thing if you look ahead to Genesis chapter 11 verse 10. In Genesis chapter 11 verse 10 he's advancing the story by drawing a straight line from Noah to Abraham. And so because these two genealogies have that kind of purpose to advance the story by following one line, they look a certain way. They look just like what you see here. But this genealogy doesn't look that way. It looks very very different than those two because here Moses isn't trying to draw a straight line from one person to another person in order to advance the story. This genealogy isn't very deep. But it's extremely wide. It's extremely wide. Moses' purpose here is to show Israel where all these nations and peoples and cities and places came from. He's giving them a very broad sweep of information to help them understand the world as they knew it. And there's basically four types of information here. I'm not going to go through every verse. You'll get the idea. Number one, he gives you information about certain individuals. Information on individuals. And you see a very good example of this. There's lots of them, but I'll just point out the first one. There in verse 2, verses 2 to 5, as he lists out the seven sons of Jacob. Now, in a genealogy, that's what you expect, right? So-and-so had so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And then what do you expect next? That he would go through each of those sons and give you all of their sons? Is that what he does here? No? He picks two of the sons of Japheth, only two, Gomer and uh, Japheth, and he gives their sons, but but no one else. Well, why does Moses only pick the sons of these two boys, and not all of them? Well, my assumption, or what, or what I have to assume, is that he's doing it this way because these are the individuals that matter from Israel's perspective. And these are the ones they would be familiar with, they need to understand, these are groups that they are aware of, so this kind of information about these individuals is given and, and not about anyone else. Number two, he talks about certain people groups throughout this genealogy. He doesn't just give the names of individual descendants, he gives whole groups of people, and you see that uh, here in verse 15. The Canaan father Sidon, and Heth, and the Ites. There's all kinds of Ites. A weird name for a kid, right? Those aren't kids, those are people groups that come from him. The Debusites, the Amorites, the Gergeshites, and so forth. He wants Israel to understand that these people groups come from Canaan. Why do you think that matters from Israel's perspective? They're going to fight those people. They're going to have a lot of interactions with these people. He wants them to know their history. Number three, he gives information about certain cities and places along the way. I'll show you a couple examples here. You see one example of this in verse 30. If you look there. He wants them to know that the sons of Jochtan lived in the territory that extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. Now, what's the significance of that? I don't know. But it, Israel understood. It. it was important to them, apparent, or to Moses apparently, that Israel had some idea of where this people went, who's in that region. They need to be have some idea of that. You get a better example if you look over in verse 10 when he mentions the city of Babel. Verse eleven, when he mentions the city of Nineveh, why is that so important? They're going to be kind of important players in Israel's future. So he helps root the understanding of these places in what has already come before. Number four, he gives information about certain historical details that stand out, and this is one of I think the most interesting pieces of this particular genealogy here. These little tidbits of information he throws in. There's two in particular i point out. First, look at the information he gives in verse 8 about this guy Nimrod. He tells us three things about Nimrod that help identify him for us. Number one, that he's the first one on the earth to be a mighty man. Which basically means he's a king. He's a ruler. He's someone of great significance in his day. Number two, he tells us he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Which means he liked venison. I don't know what that means. Number three, he he gives us a final piece that his his kingdom encompass some of the greatest cities of the ancient world, from Babel to Nineveh and all these places in between. Now, who is he? I don't know. But Israel did. See, our problem with this is we don't know if Nimrod is a name or a title. because If you look back in history, there's no one named Nimrod and in the archaeological records, but there are titles of kings that are very similar to Nimrod. But regardless of who he is, the Israelites would have been familiar with him. They would have been so familiar with him that there was even a saying about this guy, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. i trying to picture two guys in Powell, like one coming back to the door and the other one saying, how's it doing in your midtime? I nailed it, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. <laughs> they understood it. I don't understand it, but they understood it. There's a saying about this guy. And so, what Moses is doing here is showing Israel where this guy, Mm Nimrod, and his kingdom came from. He's a descendant of Ham through Cush. You see another interesting piece of information down in verse 25. There's a a guy named Eber. Pause. Here's your trivia question for the day, or your uh, piece of trivia in case you're ever doing jeopardy. It's from Eber that we get the name Hebrew. an H at the beginning and a W at the end. Hebrew, Hebrew, got it. This is important because later on, when uh, the Israelites are getting ready to enter Egypt, hmm. Moses throws out this little piece of information that the Egyptians didn't really like Hebrews. Well, but they hadn't interacted with these guys before. Who don't they like? The descendants of Hebrew. They're all Hebrews, sort of, so to speak. But eventually, that name has more to do with Israel than anyone else. The Eber has two sons. And he names the first one. Peleg, which means division. Why? Because in his days the earth is divided. People want to ask, what what is happening? It's like the crust of the earth breaking up and the continents are drifting apart? Uh, no, it's probably referring to the division of the nations, the languages that come in the very next chapter. But he just wants you to understand this is where the sky Peleg comes from. This is placing everything in this historical context so that you understand. And so, what stands out to me here as you look at chapter 10, is the breadth and variety of information that Moses includes in this section. And it stands out to me because every piece of information that's given is ultimately tied back to Noah and his three sons. He, he's trying to set the world, as Israel is aware of it, within the context of biblical history. This isn't made up. This isn't a story that I'm just like, telling you to communicate a good little moral here. Everything you know, everything you see around you, all the nations that you hear talk about in the newspaper—they all come from what I've explained. It's all rooted back, and this is important because Israel is living in the midst of a world that sees the world very differently. And you think about it from Israel's perspective—they're in the midst of nations. Whose kings stand up and tell their people, I am a god. You should worship me because I am am deity. And people go right along with it, whether they believe in it or not. But what Moses is saying is these guys aren't gods. They're from all these bozos that we already talked about back in Genesis 9. They're just men. See, this affects the way you understand your world. They're in the midst of nations who trace their origins back to all kinds of crazy stories. And what, what Moses is doing here is telling Israel, no, the, the greatest nations on earth find their history back in this biblical story. All of this helps Israel understand itself in the way that God intended to. That's what, that's what Moses is doing here in this story. He's tempting to help I- root Israel's understanding of the world as they knew it in their day in what God had done in the past. But of course, that's not all that he's doing. It's an important first step but he's not done I mean, The second, he also wants them to have an understanding of the world that is seen through the lens of God's plans for the future. And that's the Tower of Battle story in a nutshell. See, remember when I said to us about the One story that we don't really understand that story, trivialized it and made it a little children's tale that doesn't really mean anything. We've done the same thing with the Tower of Babel story, but it's not to the same extent. It's not as cute. You can't really decorate your children's room in Tower of Babel unless you have multiple speakers playing different languages to them and lullaby. it It doesn't really lend itself to the same kind of approach, but we've done the same thing with the story. When we read the story of the Tower of Babel, you can hear it in the name, what are we focusing on? The tower. We think somehow that the problem is that they want to, to build this mighty tower of to heaven so they can be like God somehow. No, 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 no. That's, is not the issue. If you think that, you just have misunderstood, you've been misinformed. The real issue at stake in the story is that these people, all the people alive at the point of this story are making plans that are contrary to God's plans. And you see this explained, clarified here in verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Why? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, well, wait a minute. What had God told Noah and his sons to go do when they got off the ark? And was to multiply. Fill the earth. Because God still loves life, and life is still in his plan. All the things we saw in the, end of the last story. He wants the earth Filled with life and these people who I would assume know this, I would assume that, that Noah and his sons are all aware of these plans and have made sure that everyone understands people who are aware of this are saying, uh, uh-uh. we're, we're gonna get together. We're gonna, we're gonna build like a, a skyscraper and a mega city, we're all gonna stay here together so that we don't do what God said. And God's response to that is, oh no, you're not. No. Uh, He's going to come down and check it out, and he's going to see that, oh, look, here's what they're doing, and so guess what? I'm going to confuse your story. I I, I, I confuse your languages. I love, I I don't know this for a fact, but just based on what we've seen in Genesis so far, I've come to believe that God loves irony. I think he must love irony because it's clear in the way that Moses writes this account that they are talking about this. They've got this plan like language is really big in the beginning of the story. And so what does God do? He confuses all their languages. He he, he comes and attacks the very thing that was used to rebel against him by confusing their languages. And because of that that's what they do. They spread all over the world like they're supposed to. God's plans for filling this world with life will not be thwarted by these people. And as Israel, there in the wilderness, passing through all these nations and lands, as they look around at the world around them, they see the results of this, they're given an understanding and guess what? God's plans are, they're coming to pass. No one's going to stop what he's doing here. There's a second way in which you can see God's plans for the future taking shape here. Remember our pattern from the flood story. You didn't do so hot on this when I asked you last time, so you've got to redeem yourself today. For my sake, you've got to redeem yourself. What's the four-part pattern we saw in the flood story? Number one, you see chaos. Say it louder. You see? Number two, you see recreation. Number three, you see blessing. It's getting quieter each time. Number four, you see failure. Okay, that was the four parts we saw. Think about where we've been so far in Genesis. We've seen that pattern two times. The story of Genesis begins in chaos. So, What does God do to chaos? He creates. He brings life. That time it created for all those people that create. Okay? He brings life out of chaos. He, he creates this world, and then he blesses it, blesses the people who are in it. He gives them commands. He gives them promises. And then what do they do? They fail. They sin. They rebel against God, against his commands and his promises. And the world is submerged into chaos once again. And so, what does God do to bring the world? How does He judge the world then that's now back in the chaos of sin? Well, He brings the chaos of a flood, destroys it all, judgment, takes Noah, the people in the ark, and He begins to recreate the world through them. He gives blessings to them, just like He gave to Adam and Eve. And then, what does He do? What happens? Failure. Failure on Noah's part, it's failure on on him's part, and chaos is present once again in the world. Chaos of sin is, is, is there. It hasn't gone away. Now, here we are in Genesis chapter 11. You see that the pattern is beginning again. Into sin, God is bringing the chaos of judgment. Now, this chaos isn't a flood this time. It's the confusion of languages. It's mixing things up so that they can't understand one another and their plans are brought to nothing. The chaos of a a judgment is brought, which means that our next step is going to be what? Recreation. Wait a minute. How is he going to recreate out of this? Well, that's where the story is turning next. Remember that the next genealogy given, straight line from Noah to who? Abraham. So, just like he did with Noah, where he picked one man through whom he would recreate his people, he picks one man through whom he will recreate his people. And to this one man, he will give blessings, promises, and commands. But unfortunately, we know that both Abraham and his family will fail. Which reminds us once again that the final solution to sin still hasn't come. We still are looking for something else. And so as Israel looks at the world around them, they need to understand that world through the, through the larger lens of what God is doing in the future. The is not over. The, the, the story is continuing. There's still more to come. And folks, it's no different for us. I said at the beginning that all of us have a worldview, whether we realize it or not. And this, view has this, been influenced by many things. I went through them all. All of them, it's some. But as followers of Jesus, as believers in the scriptures, all of us in this room should have a desire at least to have a biblical worldview, a God-centered worldview so that we can see the world in the same way that God does. And I would argue that we can do that through the same two means that Moses has used here in the story. We do it first of all by understanding that uh, the world through the foundation of what God has providentially done the We've been doing that in Genesis. You may not even realize it, but if you've been listening, if you've been paying attention, then I have been attempting to communicate to you a right understanding of God's workings in the past and how that leads into today. If you buy into the things that we've seen here in Genesis, it will affect the way you understand this world. It will affect the way you understand people. Because you realize that all people are rebels at heart. That's a big change in the way we look at things. But even more than what we've seen in Genesis, for us, from our perspective as believers in Christ, we look back to the ultimate act of God in the past, the one that gives ultimate meaning to all of life, and that, of course, is what? It's the gospel. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins. We, we would say that we need to have gospel-centered views of this world because the gospel can affect the way we see everything. I'll give you one example, because it's the right season for it. I brought up politics recently as an illustration. Um, how do we understand politics as a believer? And that's a question that I would pose to you, one that we all have to answer. I've done this before, but I wanna do it again. If you believe that politics can change people, that, that policy and laws can, can fix culture, then you're going to get all hot and bothered about every soundbite by you hear on Canada. You're going to come to the belief that if one party wins, everything will be great. And if one party loses, everything will be wrong. You're going to see the world in a certain way if you approach it from that perspective. But, but what does the gospel tell us about politics? Well, through the gospel I come to understand that all men are sinners. And that I can't legislate righteousness in anyone's heart. I come to understand that there's no policy that can be implemented that will fix society. I can maybe right some wrongs, I can do some good, I'm not saying that, but it never changes the heart. If if I understand the world through the lens of the gospel, I recognize that the only way America has any hope for the future that's of real significance is through the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of souls. So if you want to change America, then preach the gospel to your co-workers. I'd rather debate politics. You're <laughs> not going to change the world that way. You want to have hope for the future for your kids? Then preach the gospel to your neighbors. Because you can change their heart. You can, but the gospel can change their hearts. Politics never can. Through the gospel, through understanding what God has done in the past, it alters my way I look at this world because I recognize there's no hope in so many things that people seek hope in. It changes the way we respond to this world. Number two, just one example, we can do others, but number two, our understanding of the world must be seen through the lens of God's plan for the future. Which brings us back kind of to the question of last Sunday now where's all this hidden? Where are we going? What's God's plan for this world and with the return of Christ and coming judgment? What's, what's gonna happen? And once I figure that out, how should I live? It's, it's where we were last Sunday. See, if I understand that God's plans for the future for me is that I will look like Jesus when I see him face to face, first John chapter 3, then that kind of should have an impact on the way I interact with this world today. I should be pursuing Christ's likeness now not just kind of make up for the future. Or if I understand that, you know, this world will burn up, you know, 2 Peter 3, what we looked at last Sunday, then it's going to change the way I look at this world now. Like Israel, I will be see myself as being on a journey. That this is not my home. And there's no hope or happiness in anything in this world. Just not here. I don't have to to get all worried about every little thing that happens because my whole life is tied up in this stuff. I've got hope for something that's far better and far more than all of this. And so if our, our view of this world can find its foundation in the gospel, and can, can be seen then through the lens of God's plans for the future, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, your view of the world will be very, very close to how God sees it. As he sees past, present, and future once. If Israel needed a right view of the world that they lived in, then we do too. We're God's people. We're on a journey like they are. And thankfully, he hasn't left us without a map. Because here in his word and passages like what we've read this morning, he has given us the wonderful privilege of seeing his mind. How he thinks, how he teaches his children. We get to see his instructions to us for life. And if we want to be wise, and if we want to please him with our lives, then it behooves us to view this world. Father, it, it is so tempting for us to just view this world on our own terms. Whatever benefits us or makes us happy, whatever things we prefer, whatever our parents have taught us, or culture values, we are tempted to be worldly in our view. You have called us to something much much higher than that. You have given us your understanding of this world, of what you created it to be, what you have done in the past, and what your plans are for it in the future. Nobody, nobody deserves this kind of information, and yet here it is written in black and white in our laps. We will it. We are happy living our lives by our own terms. And so this morning, Lord, we need you, we need your spirit to wake us up, to, to wake us out of the stupor that we've been living in for so long that just sees the world like everybody else around us. You have called us to be different. You've called us to be your children you've given us your spirit and you've given us your word, we have no excuse. Nothing. We are sorry. We, we seek your forgiveness this morning for our many failures in the way. We just see we are no different than the unbelievers. And yet we should be. We should look back at what you've done in the past, whether it's Genesis, or the Old Testament, all those stories, all these workings of yours, these amazing things you've done and see who you are, and what you're doing. And even more important than that, we should look at the gospel, the, the death of Jesus for our sins, and recognize that you care about us deeply. And it should affect us. It should change the way we see things around us and understand sin and its impact, understand the sacrifice of Christ and his great love for us. We should be able to look into the future and want you to explain. We don't know all the details. We don't claim to. Many things are clear. And it is clear that this world will one day be destroyed and you will take your children and they will finally be free of sin and be like Jesus. If that's the case, it should change the way we live. Change the way we see things and understand things in this life. Lord, will you do that for us?
1: When you begin to work
0: in our hearts to help us understand this world like you do, to try to have a biblical understanding of this world, a biblical worldview, one that's different from the people around us, informed by your wisdom, guided by your word. That's what we need. So we come to you this morning and we ask for your help. We can't do this. Our minds, even though you have changed us and you open our eyes to see truth, we are still dull. we still just, just dull. We need to sharpen us. Help us in this area. We love Israel so much that as you were explaining to them who they were and who you were, you helped them understand these things, to have a right to understand the world as it was. You know the same is true for us. Come to you this morning, ask for your help in this area, we'll give you the praise and advance, know Scriptures, our minds can be changed. We We love you, Father.